Killers always have a story. Linked to their crime might be tales of anger or greed, of betrayal or woe. They might be justification or remorse or pride. Sometimes they will be told eagerly, but sometimes they will be held as unuttered secrets. But they always have a story. The stories I deal with are the special ones, the ones which must be heard and studied and feared. Like the prophecies of the mythological Cassandra, these stories are in fact warnings, and we ignore them at our peril. I am the keeper of the Cassandra files. Episode 3, The Man Who Has Everything. The case file of Victor Ian and Dexter. It is almost certain that the case of Victor Ian Dexter will have come to your attention before. It was certainly in all the newspapers, and the television news covered it in some detail. For a short while, it provided the media with a wealth of material to publish, and the public with a wealth of material to gossip about. This case, however, has considerably more to it than the fanciful jottings of online commentators and armchair crime enthusiasts. Victor Dexter was a man who, by almost any standards, had everything. Known as Vic to his vast circle of friends, he was handsome, rich, and popular. Moreover, it seemed that he had succeeded spectacularly in almost everything he had ever tried. Most of the biographies published about him pointed to his meteoric rise beginning at school with a band he started with three friends when he was 15. The syndicate, as they called themselves, immediately seemed to master their instruments and had an enviable ability at songwriting. Vic was a charismatic lead singer and guitarist, and it was in no small part down to him that the syndicate were able to make the leap from a group of friends playing for fun to being a very genuine musical prospect. Not plagued with the squabbles of other bands, they were disciplined, hard-working, and talented. Before long, they had been signed to a label, released an album, and had completed a tour. Within the next few years, they released four albums, all of which were critically as well as commercially successful. They had nine UK hit singles and had played stadium shows in all the major cities of the world. By the time he was 25, Vic was an accomplished and very successful musician. It was therefore a surprise to everyone when he and the band retired. The explanation to both the band's fans and the music press being simply that the band had done it all and wanted to do something else. It was an amicable conclusion to a successful undertaking, and a supportive media and public were genuinely interested in what the band, and in particular Vic, would try next. He next turned his hand to acting and was quickly offered a number of parts across all media. Seeking the satisfaction over fame, he began in the theatre, but was soon offered his own television series, a detective drama which quickly dominated the ratings and was nominated for almost every television award it was possible to win. A film career should logically have followed, but as suddenly as he had done with his music career, Vic decided he wanted to try something new and promptly retired from acting. 
What Vic tried next was writing, and once again he quickly demonstrated the talent which enabled him to seamlessly transfer from one career to another. His first two novels were a significant and critical success. There had also been interest from Hollywood studios seeking to adapt them into a film franchise. Vic found the work of writing as rewarding as it was effortless, and he had already planned his next two books by the time the first had gone on sale. As with his music and acting careers, adulation and award ceremonies soon followed. It was after one such event that Vic found himself walking tirely through the door of his penthouse apartment on the night of the 24th of November. He was holding a heavy and slightly vulgar award statue that he had been presented with at a ceremony run by some newspaper or other. The slightly blurred vision caused by too much champagne meant he couldn't even read what was written on it. He couldn't really even remember what the award was for, but that was also common after events of that type. It was all very ordinary for Vic. In fact, the only notable occurrence of the night was that he had met Jenna. Jenna was the lead singer of All Things Nice, an extremely popular girl band. Strangely, he couldn't really remember what she even looked like, or anything else about her, really, save the faint memory of expensive perfume. This was also common. In Vic's life, beautiful women came and went, without really troubling his wider consciousness at all. Many were as well known as he, but that rarely registered with Vic. His attractiveness to famous, seemingly inaccessible women was just another great thing that happened to him, and he never questioned it or at least he had never done so before. As he walked through the door of his flat, he had some vague memory of making a plan with Jenna to meet up later. She would wait a while and then slip away from the flashing cameras and have her driver take her to his building's private car park. From there, she had the code to the lift, which went straight from there to the penthouse. She would told him that she would text when she was on her way. Vic sat down, poured himself a drink, and put his phone on the table next to him. Vic's success was discreetly reflected in the decor of his home. His hallway had a mixture of framed photographs and magazine covers on the wall, but that was largely where the visible conceit ended. Aside from the shelf containing some of his most prestigious awards, tucked away in the corner of the spacious living area. This was not to say that Vic did not enjoy his success, or reflecting on it. For that, he had what he called his ego room. A large, permanently locked door in the corner of the apartment leading to what appeared to be the ultimate man cave. This was where he allowed his considerable excess across a number of fields to be fully displayed. In freestanding display cases were artifacts from his careers from his first guitar to his first manuscript. Framed on the walls were his platinum records and pictures of him with various significant persons. It was where he could sit quietly and reflect on his favourite concerts, performances, or the worlds he had created that his readers loved so dearly. It was where he could indulge in the memories of a lifetime of success. It was the one place in the world that he didn't have to be humble. It was also where he brooded on the price. He only had a vague recollection of how it had first come up. Most days it was a hazy memory of feeling fear and then a sudden warmth and confidence. 
It's possible it may even have been a childhood dream, but for the most part he was convinced that the pictures in his mind and half-remembered feelings were linked to an actual event that had happened to him. And that was most days. Today, though, his memories were clear, because today it was his birthday, and he had received a birthday card. Vic received many cards, letters, and parcels. Most were vetted and sifted by his agent and assistants. Of all the correspondences which were sent to Vic, he actually only saw a very small percentage. Yet this particular card always seemed to find him. Wherever he was in the world, whatever he was doing, it was always the same. A plain envelope with no stamp containing a simple card with an illustration depicting a young boy sitting on a bicycle. Inside was written one single word. Remember. It happened every year. He would receive the card and suddenly the memories of his childhood became clear. And he did remember. Tonight was such a night. The card must have been pushed under his door after he went out. He knew there was little point in asking the security guard downstairs if they had seen anyone heading to the penthouse. Nobody ever saw anything. Even a few years ago, when he had gone on a hiking holiday in Colorado, and somebody had pushed the envelope into his tent. Or when he was staying with a girl whom he had only met that night, not even Vic knew he would be there the following day, but sure enough, the envelope was on the girl's doormat that morning. As always, nobody had seen who had delivered it. As he came through the front door after the event, he noticed it on the mat. He snatched it up and tore it open. He took only the briefest look at the card and then filled a glass with whiskey, which he promptly drained, and then another. As the memories came flooding back with a speed and clarity Vic knew all too well, he knew he would need a drink. Sure enough, within a few moments, it had all come back to him. He could clearly picture the cruel smiles of his tormentors, three, perhaps four boys, from the year above him at primary school, standing around him as he sat on his bicycle. Due to their proximity, he could neither ride away nor dismount and flee. He was seven years old, and he was confused and frightened. With no opportunity to escape or fight back, he had simply burst into tears. This had only seemed to encourage the bullies, and within a few seconds he had been pushed from his bike onto the hard, grey pavement. One boy had jumped on top of him, and the air was pushed from his lungs. The boy's fingers tore at his face as the child attacking him gave vent to a rage that young Vic could not remember doing anything to provoke. Arms pinned by his side, he was powerless to stop either the assault or the others in the group jumping up and down on his bike. His eyes closed against the tearing nails, pain and humiliation, and he could only hear the sound of his bike being destroyed, the laughter of his attackers. Until it suddenly stopped. The pressure on his chest was released, and the callous laughter of the bullies was replaced by terrified screaming and the sound of fleeing feet. He could remember being helped to his feet and the bike being picked up from the ground and passed to him. And then he could remember the man. No, that's not quite right. He could remember a strange feeling in his stomach that stopped just short of nausea. 
He could remember the man's pitch-black eyes set deep into his pale white skin, and the black lips that seemed to have been smudged beneath his pointed nose. It was as if someone had wiped coal dust or marker pen on their thumb and simply smeared it across his face. What Vic couldn't do was remember any details of how these features went to form an actual countenance. In fact, all Vic could remember about the first seconds of their meeting was the need he felt to embrace the man and sob tears of infinite gratitude into the fabric of his thick, pitch-black coat. Had Vic thought hard, this figure might have been the subject of a thousand childhood nightmares, but at that moment he was nothing but comforting and benevolent. When the man spoke, it was with a warmth which totally reassured the bruised and scratched little boy. He said he knew how frightened Vic had been, he knew of his pain and humiliation, and that he had done nothing to deserve or provoke what had happened. Vic tried to stop the tears and choked back the sobbing noises his body wanted to make. The man seemed to almost invite him to weep if he needed to, and so after a couple of moments Vic had done so. A long but protracted fit of tears which both embarrassed and reassured Vic. When he was done, he felt immediately cleansed. Never be afraid of tears, the men had told him. I have heard much crying. Tears can be very comforting. Vic didn't really know what the man meant, but that was often the case for Vic when grown-ups spoke. He simply assumed it was wise and clever, as most of the adults he knew from parents to teachers seemed to be. For a moment, the man seemed to be lost in his own thoughts, as if debating with himself the merits of what he would say next. When he eventually spoke again, his voice had lost none of its warmth. Suppose I could make it so you were never frightened again. You could be happy and successful and never, ever scared or bullied. I can make it so your whole life is perfect. Everything you have ever wanted will come to pass. You will achieve all your dreams. You will want for nothing. You will never feel low or put upon or even unhappy. The tears you cry will be ones of gratitude and joy. Everything in your life would be perfect. Everything would be as you want. Would you like that? Even Vic's parents had never made him such an offer. In fact, his father had often spoken of how hard life could be, and that hard work and playing by what he called the rules sometimes offered no reward. So it was with no delay whatsoever that Vic nodded his agreement. The man smiled, or at least the strange gash where a mouth ought to be turned up at the corner, and his eyes twinkled. Very well. But if I do this for you, I will need something in return. Vic thought very quickly, and conceded that there was nothing he possessed which had any great value, or which he was not prepared to part with. Even his bicycle with its now buckled wheels was worth nothing. What do you want? he asked. All I need in return is the years after your fortieth birthday. They are mine. I take them for myself. In return, you can be anything, do anything, see and feel and know anything. But on your fortieth birthday, I will come for you. On your fortieth birthday, 
and not a day before, you will belong to me. To Vic, who saw no malice in the man at all, this seemed quite a reasonable trade. The simple fact is that the prospect of being forty was, to an eight-year-old, as far off in the future as being four hundred. Vic would never be bullied again, but he would always be happy. He even got to keep his toys and broken bike. All that the man wanted was something in the very distant future, a concept which was barely worth considering. He vigorously nodded his agreement, and the man took his hand. When gentlemen make bargains, they shake hands. He smiled again. Enjoy your life, boy. It will be many times blessed. But you must not forget the price. In fact, I will see to it that you don't. And with that, the man simply turned and walked away, leaving young Victor ponder what it would be like to never be bullied and always be happy. He didn't have long to wait. Almost the very next day, he was surrounded by people wanting to be his friend, people who smiled and listened to him. For the rest of his school days, he was happy, popular, and loved. Furthermore, as Vic recalled the other details of his childhood after the meeting with the man, he noted that he had never been ill or suffered any kind of injury. His relationships had been warm, and when they'd ended, he was only left with pleasant memories or no memories at all. He had never been sacked or been in a fight. He had never missed a train or burned his mouth on coffee. He hadn't been stung by a wasp or even stubbed his toe. He had not suffered a single moment of anguish or even the slightest inconvenience since the day he met the man. Everything he did seemed to be exactly as he wanted it to be, as agreed. Yet in spite of all this, he forgot the man and the bargain, save for a few hours each year on his birthday, when he would see the white envelope alone on the doormat or hidden amongst a hundred other envelopes. He would open the card, read the writing, and he would remember. And as he got older, he began to wonder what price would he eventually have to pay. That night, more than ever before, the price was on his mind. Tonight was his fortieth birthday. Of course, a part of him still denied it had ever happened at all, that his success and almost charmed life was simply a mixture of good fortune and talent. This was certainly the case for many others he knew who were rich, successful, and popular, so why not him? And yet there was the card every year, and every year the word remember written inside it came to read more and more like a threat. And the memory of the bargain he had struck became clearer and clearer, and faded just as quickly once the birthday was over. It was because they did so that Vic had so little time to brood on them, and so when the day approaching his fortieth birthday came, he had made little or no preparation for the sight of the envelope on his mat, or what it might actually mean. He walked into his ego room, perhaps to put another locked door between him and the outside world, perhaps in search of some validation from the treasures he had accumulated over the years that he had earned them himself. Perhaps he needed some assurance that they were not the results of some twisted bargain made to a stranger thirty-two years ago. He slumped into a chair and stared at the walls. Could he really have written over a dozen hit singles? 
could he really have played some of the biggest venues in the world? Could he really have achieved all that in such a short space of time without some kind of outside influence? Could he really have starred in hit theatre and television shows without the slightest bit of theatrical training? But what about the writing? Could he really have simply sat at a computer and produced award-winning books? A body of work which everyone seemed to like, even love. Really? Him? Was he, was anyone, that lucky? But what if he wasn't? What if the bargain were real? What if tonight really was the night? What price was he going to have to pay? It was then that he realised that he was sweating profusely, and for the first time since he was eight years old, he was genuinely frightened. Not the sort of fear which turns into excitement at a new experience or makes an achievement all the sweeter. This fear was one that made you cry or piss yourself and run. It was the fear which made you agree to almost anything not to feel it ever again. It was a feeling he had not experienced in a very long time, and he had not missed. He looked at the clock. It was 11.34. He had 26 minutes of his birthday left. If something was going to happen, it was going to happen soon. He looked around the room. He could lock the front door and the door to the ego room, and that would provide some considerable barrier to whatever might come up to the penthouse. He could push the leather sofa in front of the door, and that would add yet further reinforcement. He could go as far as to barricade both doors with everything he owned. Surely that would delay things sufficiently. Perhaps not. Vic realized that defense might be a good strategy, but attack might be even better. He looked around him for some kind of weapon. Had he had any time to prepare, he might have purchased a gun or some other kind of assured hardware. Perhaps this was why the cards were sent, and the memories only came back when they were opened. Perhaps that's why they also faded so quickly. Perhaps it was so he did not have the chance to prepare an adequate defense or acquire an effective instrument of attack. Vic realized that by that logic, if something was coming for him, it could be hurt. He leapt from his chair and ran into the kitchen, pulling open the drawers and cupboards looking for a weapon. His kitchen knives, while expensive, were not sturdy enough to act as a stabbing weapon. Similarly, none of his pots or pans were heavy enough to effectively swing as a blunt instrument. He ran back into the living room. The only thing in there he could really use was one of his old guitars, but it was too big to swing in the narrow hallway. If he was going to use a guitar as a weapon, whoever, whatever it was, would have to already be inside. He decided that this would be his plan B, and he continued his search for something heavy but smaller, which he could use at the front door should it be necessary. Suddenly his eyes fell on the award statue he'd brought home that night. He picked it up from the chair where he had tossed it. It seemed to be sturdily built with a heavy base. He gave a couple of practice swings, and satisfied that he now had the best weapon available, he began to try to formulate a plan. Unfortunately, time was not on his side. The three slow knocks at the door were deliberate, and unlike that of any natural visitor, 
At least two seconds separated each one, as if whoever was knocking wanted to instill the most terror possible in those on the other side of the door. Vic looked at his watch. It was 11.54. There were still six minutes of his birthday left. He thought for a moment about running back to his ego room and barricading the door, but life had given Vic little experience of how fleeing a problem might work. In fact, since the age of eight, it had given him no experience of problems at all. With no way of judging how effective this action might be, he decided against it and considered again the only other clear option. It was a decision he quickly made, and gripping the old statue tightly, he moved quickly along the hallway towards the front door. The knocks came again, as slowly and deliberately as before. Vic blinked with each one, as if a gunshot was going off next to his ear. He held his breath as he peered through the security door viewer. There, unchanged and exactly as he'd remembered him, was the man he'd spoken to all those years ago. The pitch-black eyes and lips and the accompanied strange feeling in his stomach that stopped just short of nausea. Almost immediately, Vic knew that there was no reasoning with this creature, no argument he could make and no bargain he might strike. He also knew that he could not run. The man would find him just as he had always done with the birthday cards. Perhaps that was another purpose of sending them, to remind Vic that there was nowhere to hide. It was very clear to Vic that he could either submit or he could fight. With so much to lose, Vic decided on the latter, and, snatching the door open, he smashed the base of the statue down onto the head of the man standing in front of him, staring at him with black, lifeless eyes and grinning with a black, lipless mouth. Vic had no idea how many times he had struck the man. He had some vague memory of being amazed how easy it all was, and how the man had made no attempt to stop him or even to cry out. In fact, for a short time, the only sounds in the hallway outside Vic's penthouse was the sound of his own breathless panting. When he eventually grew too exhausted to hit the man any longer, Vic stepped back and looked at what he had done. The man lay at his feet, clearly dead, but still staring at him with those black eyes. Blood spattered the floor, walls, and ceiling of the hallway outside his door, and Vic himself was virtually covered in it. It looked almost as black as the man's eyes in the artificial strip lighting. A few seconds later, the doors of the private lift, which came from the car park, opened, and Jenna stepped out to see Vic covered in blood and standing over the corpse with a gore-spattered award statue in his hand. A moment later, the screaming started. In fact, the screaming was still going on when the apartment security people arrived, and then the police. Vic barely noticed any of them. He was too busy looking down at his blood-soaked hands and the marble base of the ward, now soaked with blood and hair and pieces of skull. It was then that he finally noticed what was engraved on the ward. One simple word. Remember. The last thing Vic remembered before passing out was the sound of his own laughter. 
the court case was almost farcical. Firstly, the victim was unidentified and remained so to this day. It then transpired that the man's body had disappeared from the mortuary before a full post-mortem could be carried out. In fact, the only real evidence that Vick had murdered anyone at all was the testimony of Jenna and the evidence of those first on the scene who had seen the body. That and the fact that, after his arrest, Victor was heard saying over and over again, Is it over? Did I kill him? Is he dead? The jury took two days to reach a verdict, and in the end they found Vic guilty by a majority of ten to two. It was well recorded in the newspapers that Vic simply looked relieved when he was taken away to begin his sentence and to pay his debt to society. It is a debt he pays by teaching music and creative writing at the prison where he will be for the next 14 years. By any standards, he is a model prisoner, well-behaved, respectful, popular, and keen to help his fellow inmates. As one governor noted, he is possibly the best prisoner he has ever had. It would appear, once again, that Vic Dexter has found something he excels at. As for the other debt, well, perhaps it was paid that night in the hallway with the end of the perfect life and the beginning of his incarceration. Or maybe it was all a coincidence. The mysterious stranger was never coming for him. Perhaps it was all in his mind, and Vic could simply not believe his own luck at the perfect life he lived. If that was the case, though, who did he kill? The only thing that is for sure is that every year on his birthday, Vic receives an envelope. Inside is a card with the image of a little boy on a bicycle on it. Nobody knows what is written inside, and Vic has never said 